Welcome to Better Words, a podcast for readers who want to know the stories behind the pages. We're your hosts, Caitlin and Michelle, two book nerds who bring you in-depth conversations about writing and publishing from those on the inside. Basically, we're just here to talk about books. We're so glad you're joining us. Hello and welcome back. <laughs> Sorry. The one time we went to say hello at the same time. <laughs> hello, everyone. <laughs> welcome back to Better Words. Thank you for joining us. This is like the funnest part of my week. And it means, Caitlin, that we definitely get to talk to each other, even though, you know, we're both busy, you've got a lot going on with work. I'm just avoiding life. <laughs> you know, okay. this is, it's, it's so great to always be able to talk to each other and to share our weird conversations with everybody else. I mean, lucky we <laughs> don't record all of them because some of them truly are very boring for yeah. other people. <laughs> yeah. Believe it or not, this is the, well, yeah, the edited version, I suppose, of our conversations with each other. So, <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, it's cutting out the 10 minutes I've spent trying to get photos of squirrels outside my windows while Caitlin talks to me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh. Anyway, um, it is lovely to be able to speak to you guys every week. It's something that we look forward to. And, you know, we hope that the conversations that we have with the authors as well bring you as much joy as they bring us. Um, because obviously, it's a, it's a tough time right now. I don't think you need us to say that. <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure everyone is aware. But um, just while we're here and on this topic, dear listeners, if you are enjoying these episodes um, or a particular interview, please, you know, get a friend to listen, um, share us on your Instagram stories, leave us a review. We would really love to hear, see that sort of thing. It would mean so much to us. It would make our day because we do put a lot of time into this in the background. Um, I don't know if it comes across like that or not. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it's especially this season, we've really tried to put a lot more in. So especially if you're enjoying like the new way that we do the intros and stuff, it would be lovely to hear your feedback. And yeah, we're really pleased with the range of different books we've featured this, this season. So we hope that you're enjoying that. And also, oh my gosh, let us know if you've picked up something because of one of our recommendations and then enjoyed it. Like, especially if it's something that, that would be the best thing you would read. I know. <laughs> Like if anyone ever says to me on Instagram, like messages me or something, or, you know, sometimes I'll put up a picture of a book and they'll be like, oh, I'm going to get this because of, because of this review. Or if they message me to say, I read such and such because of this, like that literally is the best feeling. Like it just, it's so good. So anyway, yes. Housekeeping aside, actually tiny, tiny other little bit of housekeeping. Hopefully at the end of November, I will have much better recommendations for our Instagram live because um, the UK is going back into lockdown for a month at least. Don't think it will actually finish in a month, let's be real. <laughs> um, so hopefully I will have lots more recommendations for you. Um, Jack and I are nearly finished Downton Abbey, which we started in the first lockdown. Um, oh, wow. So we just have the movie. We, we're finishing season six now. And we just have the movie to go after this. So I'm trying to like think of which other long-term series we can get into. I kind of want to make him watch Mad Men just because I love it and I want to rewatch it and it is a big investment, but we'll see how that goes. But yeah, hopefully we'll have a lot more. I'm looking on the positive side and I am going to go to the library and get even more books out. So we'll see how many, like, let's, let's make it a challenge and fun for me. Let's see how many things I can read, <laughs> watch and listen to in lockdown. Totally. Challenge accepted. <laughs> what a good idea. Uh, yeah. So do you want to start with your recommendation this week, Caitlin? Sure. So one thing I've really gotten into a lot more um, recently is trying um, lots of different podcasts and like 
listening to episodes here and there of random podcasts or finding like little series. So I actually have two fiction podcasts to recommend this week in case anyone wants, you know, a bit of a fun story. So the first one is called Next Stop and it's like a sitcom podcast and it's only like six or seven episodes. I don't remember. And they're not very long. Um, And it follows a group of friends in a, I was about to say New York, but I actually. A group of friends in a New York apartment building. (laughs) Yeah. I actually can't remember if it's in New York or if it's like a nameless city and I just assigned New York because duh. Um, Yeah. But anyway, so it starts off um, with there's three roommates and one of them proposes to her girlfriend at the very beginning of the podcast at a new train station, hence next stop. And yeah, so then she moves out and they have to get a, a new roommate. So it's kind of this like story of the them becoming friends with the new roommate and staying friends with the old roommate as, you know, she kind of moves on. Um, yeah, and it's quite funny pretty easy listening so that's pretty fun and my second recommendation has a little asterisk because I haven't actually finished listening listening to it yet it's a nine episode musical podcast that's Um, awesome yeah and I have like three episodes to go so I'm feeling pretty solid (laughs) but (laughs) it's called little did I know and the story is actually based on a novel um, and it's a musical about a group of college kids who have graduated, but for the summer they are working um, at like a summer stock theatre um, to put on a few shows in a small town. But it's set in like the late 70s, so they're very like they want to do their kind of theatre and they want to put on like hair or something um but the person who owns the theater because it's very like small town and they just want to sell tickets to tourists they're like no music man (laughs) so yeah it's quite fun um yeah I'm really enjoying listening to it so you've really gotten into fiction podcasts lately because our last two months of audio recommendations on Instagram have also been fiction podcasts. I know. I really have gotten into fiction podcasts. So if anyone has any other recommendations, let me know. Um, Both of those ones I just mentioned, I believe, were like um, both of the ones I just recommended only aired for the first time this year, pretty sure. So, yeah, let me know if you've got any recommendations. That sounds amazing. I yeah. um I also have like a little bit of a compilation recommendation this week. So I I don't actually know whether I've mentioned Matt Haig on the podcast before, but when I was in England the first time um a few years ago, I picked up his novel How to Stop Time and I really really loved it. Um, So since then, I've always been meaning to read more of Matt Haig's fiction and the name Matt Haig might be familiar because he wrote a book called Reasons to Stay Alive and he wrote another nonfiction book called Notes on a Nervous Planet. Now, he's very well known for those two books. I've not actually read them. (laughs) <laughs> the reason I I feel like I feel like a bit of a annoying hipster being like oh well I actually love him for his fiction <laughs> but it's true I really really do um so especially I think I actually read the first like obviously the first one I read of his was how to stop time back in mm-hmm. Australia um and then since we've moved over here I picked up the dead fathers club last year and I didn't read it until we went away in March just before lockdown the first time Um, and I really really loved it it's got such an unusual writing style and so it's about a a boy whose father dies but he sees his ghost um, and he tells him to do certain things and it's it's 
this blend of like magic and like realism and this contemporary setting. Uh, so after that, at the start of lockdown, the first time I ordered from a lovely indie bookstore called Dial Lane Books, um, I ordered a copy of I actually, I think I, I messaged him on Instagram and said, have you got anything by Matt Haig? Don't care what it is. And he <laughs> said, I've got the humans or the Radleys. I was like, go with the Radleys. I don't care. <laughs> don't even know what it's about. Literally, it is that that I will buy anything by Matt Haig now. Although I must say, I am a bit, not scared to read his nonfiction, but I've definitely put that off because I love his fiction so much. Yeah. Anyway, the Radleys, much like Dead Fathers Club is just a normal Yorkshire village except one of the families are vampires and they've been (laughs) like they've been like reformed and in hiding for years and then the teenage daughter who has always been quite sickly and weak she goes to a party and ends up killing a boy and they're like oh no we better tell the kids that they're vampires like it's Oh my gosh, the kids don't even know. Oh, that's so fun. Yeah. So then it's like the consequences of this. Um, And the reason that I'm, I'm talking about him on the podcast now is because his beautiful new novel, The Midnight Library, came out um, in September. I pre-ordered a copy, um, but had uni and all this other stuff and then I got the fear of like what if I don't like it and it's one of my favorite authors anyway I finally started it last week and little asterisks for me too I haven't quite finished it yet (laughs) but we can we can blame Boris's announcement on Saturday for distracting me um but I am absolutely loving it and the idea of the midnight library is that there is this place between life and death that is a library and all the books are all the possible lives you could live from that point on um so it's slightly I mean he obviously explains it very well in the book but it's slightly difficult for me to explain but basically when you are in the library you can pick different books and it will give you a different life based on decisions you've made in the past and you sort of slip into that life and then if you feel any disappointment, you come back to the library and it helps you see like get rid of regrets that you might have had. But then if you find a life that you truly love and that truly makes you happy, then you can just stay there and live in that life. And it's like this idea of these infinite parallel lives running alongside each other yeah. it's, it's just it's very hard I guess it is magical I love realism. a touch of magic though yeah I guess it counts sounds like it's probably a bit of magical realism and I do love yeah. a bit of magic like that just touch that makes life a bit extra something I don't know yeah <laughs> so but it's I'm not sold. like too much for me yeah oh it's it's so beautiful yeah, he's just got such a way with words too and I just really am amazed at his imagination. Yeah, I've really got to pick up one of his books. Which do you think I should read first? Oh, it's it's hard because, like, I mean, I guess the easiest recommendation would be The Midnight Library because it's out now. But then I'm like, oh, but, you know, what if, what if then all the other books are disappointments for you? I don't know. <laughs> But I, I do think all his books are really, really wonderful. Wonderful. Oh, that's so exciting. Yeah. <laughs> I really have to read. Really, I'm even more compelled now to read one of his books. So I'll have to <laughs> get, get onto that, you know, just onto that long list. Uh, we yeah, all I know. <laughs> you, it's almost like you need another lockdown to give you time, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Knock on wood. No, no yeah. thank you. Uh, <laughs> it is what it is. Yeah. Oh, well. Well, I suppose on that lovely note, um, we should get on to this week's wonderful interview. Actually, I hope that this week's interview makes you feel a little bit better about this situation, because I know for both of us, when we finished this, we sort of were like, it's not as bad as it seems. Yeah. Things Felt will very get better. uplifted, didn't we? Yeah. yeah. So we really enjoyed this. There's a lot of wisdom in this chat. <laughs> So 
So we are incredibly lucky today to be welcoming this guest to Better Words. She spent 15 years working in advertising before writing her first novel. That book, How I Live Now, has since sold over 1 million copies in 36 territories, won prestigious awards and been adapted into a film. Her subsequent novels have also been awarded or shortlisted for multiple awards, including the Carnegie Medal. And although she was born in Boston, our guest now lives in London with her husband, daughter and dogs. Welcome Meg Rossoff to Better Words. Oh, it's nice to be here. (laughs) It's wonderful to have you join us. And like I said, we feel very lucky to be talking to someone with, you know, such a wonderful resume of awards (laughs) and prizes and wonderful writing. So thank you for joining us. If you live long enough, we usually can collect a few things along the way. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) So we are here to mainly talk about your most recent novel, The Great Godden. So for those who haven't had the pleasure of reading it yet, can you give us a little blurb? Oh my gosh, yes. Well, it's a it takes place um on a beach, not unlike the beach that I've spent lockdown on, um, which is in East Anglia on the east coast of England. And it's a kind of classic plot isn't what I'm best at normally so I tend to kind of steal basic tropes so this one is a real stranger comes to town story and it's about uh, two families who come to the beach every single year but this year and they're four teenage kids and um, this year the two sons of the godmother of one of the families um, who are who's a movie star God, am I doing this right? This is not a good elevator pitch. <clears throat> Two rather glamorous movie star sons come to the beach for the summer and um, havoc ensues because there's a lot of sexual tension. There's a lot of sex. There's a lot of sort of disruptive uh, behavior. Nobody quite knows what's going on. And um, I think that's kind of it. So it's a little bit like an an idyll you know a beautiful summer that's kind of interrupted by these two boys yeah yeah I think you did do a good job of explaining that because I read this before Michelle did and I really struggled to explain it I was was like like, what's it about (laughs) I liked it but I don't know what happened Well, um, I think people who are more interested in plot um, usually have books where you can sort of say, you know, this is what happens. These are the twists and turns. Um, But because what I'm interested in is character, you know, you could call it a book of sort of sexual awakening or you could call it a book. I mean, my editor yesterday was saying, I was saying it's quite a cheerful book in a way. Um, And she said, oh, my God, are you crazy? It's about a sociopathic narcissist. (laughs) And in this age of Trump, you know, that really hits home with Americans. And I want to say, look, A, I'm American, and don't compare my book to anything having to do with Trump. Mm -hmm. And, you know, B, sociopathic narcissist. I I mean, I'd like to hear your take on it because you're more in the age group, but... I didn't quite see see him that way. I mean, he doesn't rape anybody. He doesn't beat anybody up. He's not, he he creates havoc in a way, but everybody kind of comes out of it a bit older and wiser rather than seriously damaged. I ended up feeling more sorry for him really in the end um, and thinking that he was probably the the most damaged one of all. And he's not going to be able to move on. Yeah, um, but and he's probably doomed to repeat these patterns in his life, yeah. and potentially, I just was like, "That's so sad yeah. <laughs> that that's going to yeah. be your life." Yeah, exactly. I, just, I just thought of this, so I wish I kind of had it more thought out. But kind of reminds me of Serena Vanderwoodson in Gossip Girl, how she was always that character who kind of was so adored um, and also a little bit feared and just kind of soaked up all the energy in the room and then everyone like everyone is like, oh, she ruined it. And she's mm. just like, oh, did I? Like, I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, one thing I'm really interested in is the, you know, um, and again, this editor was going on about toxic masculinity and all that sort yeah. of stuff. 
Um, but I'm interested in the downside of beauty as well. And of course, you know, look at me, it would be the sort of thing I'm interested in. (laughs) Poor, poor people. Um, But I think there is a real downside uh, with being beautiful. I think it's really confusing and you never know whether someone is with you. You know, it's it's like the downside of being fantastically famous or fantastically rich. You don't know whether your friends are with you or your boyfriend is with you or your girlfriend is with you because of you or because of how you look or what you have and you know I think that's sort of something that's a little bit underexplored in a way everybody wants to be beautiful everybody's photographing themselves now you know in order to be more beautiful you know you go to South Korea everybody has had plastic surgery in order to be more beautiful I mean the rate of 21 year olds who've had plastic surgery is ridiculously high in South Korea. So everyone is kind of striving for this sort of physical ideal. And yet, you know, as human beings, is that really what we want? Is that really what's going to make us happy? Or is it just a kind of confusing element? Um, Mm. You know, it's easy for me because I can look back and say, I mean, I had endless arguments with my mother who, you know, when she was 13, she, in those days, I mean, so she was, so she was born in 1929. So it was sort of 1942. She was put on amphetamines to lose weight and had a nose job to be more beautiful. And she and I had this endless argument throughout my life about, you know, she said, oh, you should have a nose job. And I said, look, you know, if I had been born more beautiful, I would have been really grateful. But frankly, I don't really want to go through all that. I'm okay the way I am, if you'd stop harassing me. (laughs) And at least, you know, if you, most people fall between kind of 20 and 80%, don't we? I mean, we're all, you know, most of us are not really ugly. Most of us are not really gorgeous. And we all sort of managed to kind of trip along in life, find someone who loves us and, you know. Yeah, everyone figures it out anyway. Not everyone has to be movie star beautiful. Yes, exactly. I think that is so interesting, though. I think the reason that's sort of got my interest today is because I've been listening to a podcast called You're Wrong About, and they've been talking about um, Charles and Diana, Princess Diana and there's that parallel there between being really beautiful and actually, like you said, never knowing if that's why someone likes you and this whole idea of being very, very rich. And something they said was they sort of questioned, oh, should we do this podcast series going into this deep dive about Princess Diana when there's so much serious stuff happening in the world? There's a bit of that like, oh, poor rich people sort of thing. But I think we are interested in that element of these people we admire and we project what we think their life must be like exactly to find out there's there's like an element of oh they're actually more miserable than us there's an element there of like oh that's kind of good because it makes me feel better but then also there's just that intrigue of what is it like to live that life and I think there's definitely an element of that in in the book as well where you sort of start to see this facade crumbling yeah between especially with like Matty and Kit and like you see this sort of oh it looks perfect from the outside is a commodity in a way and as you say they're a very beautiful looking couple but what's going on under the surface is way Mm. more complicated and I remember I can't remember who it was but it was some some famous kind of Hollywood star who said being born beautiful is like being born with a pile of gold and and having to give away one coin every single day of your life until there's nothing left. You know, at least when you get to be my age, if you didn't start out incredibly beautiful, you don't think, oh my God, I've lost my beauty. (laughs) I mean, it's You know, I I guess as a writer, what I'm interested in doing is challenging a lot of the things that people take for granted. It's better to be beautiful. It's better to be rich. It's, you know, it's better to have a boyfriend. It's, you know, all those kinds of things. Um, And I think what I'm doing is trying to come back to the idea that it's better to be who you are and do that in some way that's kind of 
comes with some introspection and some self-knowledge and, you know, that you're adding to all the time in life rather than losing bits of all the time. I think it was funny at the start, you said, you know, you're not really interested in plot usually, or you, you don't necessarily focus on that. And what you've just talked about there is exactly the reason that we as readers love reading books that are mostly character and not that much plot. It's the reason probably we're not huge fans of fantasy and we just like, I mean, my boyfriend will ask me all the time, like, oh, what's your, what's your book about? Is it good? And I'm like, oh, it's, you know, there's some people and, you know, this thing happens in their life and they're just living their life and that's about it. Yeah. <laughs> it's very hard to like describe to him. Like that. I agree. I mean, I think the, the elevator pitch is just so kind of, you know, overdone. And look, there are tons of people who love reading, you know, Jeffrey Archer and Len Dayton and, you know, and as you say, fantasy where, you know, then the dragon comes in and then the king, you know, <laughs> the throne. Yeah. So actually not everyone is interested in that. I mean, I, I always think that my book slightly pivots around the, there's one line in it that, that I feel really quite proud of, which is uh, when anybody expresses nostalgia for youth I think they have an adequate recall. In other words, you know, everybody going back and going, oh, I wish I were young again. They don't remember how difficult it was. Most people, it, it's quite difficult. You know, youth, again, is a commodity, you know, and it's, it's the kind of commodity that people look at from afar, from being older or, you know, being further away and think, oh, God, youth is so amazing, you know, you're free, you don't have to pay a mortgage, you, you know, you get to have sex with new people, you get to fall in love, all that kind of stuff. What they forget is all that time when you're not falling in love, all that time when you're wondering. Yeah, you your heart's broken or you're broke or unemployed. Exactly. Or, oh. exactly. And uncertain about what you are and whether you're ever going to get where you want to be in life and all that kind of business. So it's those in-between spaces that I'm interested in. Wonderful. Well, I mean, that's what we like and that's why we enjoy the book as well. <laughs> so um, to talk a bit more about the book, we wanted to talk specifically about the narrator because they are never named or identified and yet as readers seeing the whole thing through their eyes, experiencing it, you do feel so close to them, but we don't know who they are. Um, and they're also genderless as well, which made me sort of, I was thinking like, oh, is there going to be a twist? Is there this? Is there that? Like I was trying to pick things out. And so I think it was very a very interesting choice. And I wanted to kind of know more about why you did it that way. Yeah, I mean, there that's really kind of at the centre of the book in a funny way, even though I would say in a way that the sort of lack of name and gender of the of the narrator is is quite underplayed. I mean, it, it doesn't feature hugely. It's almost a sort of an absence in the middle of the book. And it's the only book, it's the only book that I've ever written that I gave up on. And I started writing it in 2011, and I just couldn't focus the bloody narrator. I couldn't figure out whether it was male or female or who he or she was or how it worked. And therefore, the book wouldn't come in, into focus. And in the end, I gave up on it quite reluctantly because there was a lot there, but it just wasn't working. And a year ago, January, I just was sort of, you know, fooling around on my desktop, as you do. And I picked up the draft again. And I thought, oh, it's been seven years. I think I'll have a look at it. And I read through it. And I knew immediately that the problem was that the narrator was trying to tell me that they wanted to stay hidden and that there was something about that person that wanted to stay, stay hidden. And the minute I accepted that, the book fell into place. There isn't an answer. You know, people go, oh, which way did you really you know, mean, is it really male, really female, or is it transgender? Well, how do you re how do you see the character? Well, I mean, I do see the character in a certain way, but it's not relevant because the the character itself wants to stay away from scrutiny. You know, that does happen in books. And that's sort of one of the nicest things about writing is when your characters are trying to tell you something. It's a bit like being in therapy, you know, where you sort of there's an issue between you and your therapist but it hasn't come out but it's a big elephant in the room and in a way it's the, it's the same when you're writing is sometimes a character is trying to tell you something about themselves and you're not listening 
and you know, before I started writing, because I was 46 when I wrote my first novel, so I I had been a reader for years and years and years before I started writing. And I used to hear people talk about, oh, well, my character didn't want to do this or the plot. And I think, oh, for God's sakes, you're the writer. Just make it happen. But, you know, so much writing comes from this place in your unconscious where, you know, you're not a hundred, if it's going really well, you're not a hundred percent in control. You're, you are trying to find out as much as the reader is trying to find out. And I remember hearing Donna Leone, who is a um, um, detective writer. She writes these detective novels set in Venice and I haven't really read them, but I heard her, I don't really read detective novels, but I heard her interviewed on the radio and she said there's always a murder at the beginning of her books and she never knows who done it until she gets to the end of the book. And I was so shocked by that because I thought, how is it possible? You know, you must know in order to set the clues. But she said, if I know who done it at the beginning, then the reader will know who done it as well. And I think there's a real truth in that. If you, yeah. know, you want to keep, you know, you, if you're not sure, then the reader won't be sure either. And that's what gives a detective novel its kind of compelling quality. Well, wow, that's such a good point. I always think that crime novels must have to be planned out, like so carefully, so it all makes sense at the end, but maybe not. <laughs> most writers will tell you, not every single one, but most writers will tell you that writing a novel is as much a journey of discovery as reading a novel. Mm. Um and that you're taking the reader along on this journey with you. And when you kind of resolve it all at the end, you're all coming to that together. You know, that, that I don't know. I, I It's hard to explain. But I, the other thing I always remember is a story some editor told me about a woman who lost her entire novel in the early days of computers, you know, hadn't backed up, lost an entire novel. And the editor said, well, just write it again. You know, you know. And she said, well, I why would I do that? I already know what happens. And that stuck in my mind, too, because I thought, really, is that how it works? It is kind of how it works. It's the fun for the writer. It's the same when when people go to do a painting, I think. You know, you start, you make a mark, you maybe want to explore some subject, but you don't know exactly what it's going to look like at the end. You know, that's what that's the fun of it. Um, until we had interviewed quite a few authors for this podcast, I always thought that that, oh, the character just like did it all themselves and that's what they wanted. I used to think that that was total bullshit as well. But once you've <laughs> had enough people talk about it and how it kind of took over when they were writing, I don't know, you start to believe it. <laughs> well, it's not every aspect of the book. No. You know, yeah. There are times where you think, okay, I want to send. I mean, I had a character once that I, I took him to the airport and then I was trying to figure out where he was going to go next. And I tried sending him all these different places and he just wouldn't bloody go. <laughs> and in the end, I had him just live at the airport for six weeks. And that was, that completely took me by surprise. But every time I put him on a plane and sent him somewhere, it just, the book kind of died. You know, it's not that I couldn't probably have figured out a place for him to go and made the book stay alive, but it just wasn't working. And so then you think, oh, okay, maybe he wants to just stay at the airport. So you mentioned before that, you know, being more interested in character, you sort of steal bits of classic, classic, um, you know, summer novels. And like you said, this one is The Stranger Comes to Town, Havoc Ensues. Um, but you've also, I've seen you mention before that, you know, The Great Garden could possibly be the first in a series of summer, pivotal summer novels so we'd we'd love to sort of talk about that a bit more what what are your plans there well during lockdown I wrote the second one um Yay. which what I know <laughs> not quite so useless because yeah the, congratulations yeah, I know. <laughs> at the moment I can just sit around all day you know just wandering around the internet doing accomplishing almost nothing but I did write a whole novel um in the first four months and uh it's not related at all to the great garden it it's um, it's about friendship. It's about two girls who meet during an internship in New York City and what happens, you know, to their friendship. And, you know, there are there is the kind of romance and the sex and the, you know, the usual stuff. But it's not it's not center stage. It's the friendship that's that's really important. And, you know, what I, I do find it really interesting at the moment that 
so much stuff has kind of names and labels. So people talk about toxic masculinity. Well, you know, before there was toxic masculinity, there were just guys to avoid, you know, and there yeah. was friendship that went wrong. You know, it's there's nothing, I mean, when things go wrong, they look really unpleasant sometimes, but it doesn't mean, you know, I mean, I don't know, I say to my daughter <clears throat> that, you know, every relationship that doesn't, you know, so-called last forever is, a me- you know, is usually a mess. You know, all the relationships that come before the one that you end up with usually has some kind of difficult, messy element. And that, you know, if you're lucky enough to find someone who you want to spend years with, then it's usually pretty easy. Um, and, you know, there are toxic friendships as well, you know, um, but hundred <laughs> percent. And, and they, and it's not that anyone is set out to, to, you know, gaslight you or, you know, but people are grasping what they need. And sometimes what they need is too much, or sometimes what they need is the wrong thing from you, you know, that twists you up. I mean, I find for instance, that I tend to be really generous with money unless I'm with somebody who is really mean with money. And then I start getting really mean with money. So it somehow brings out the worst in me. You know, what we're all looking for is friends and relationships that bring out the best in you. But along the way, hello, it gets messy really quick and really, you know, and so anyway, so that's what I'm writing about. And it's called, um, so far, I think, I don't, I don't know if the title will stick. It's called Friends Like These. In other words, with friends like these who needs enemies. I love that. That sounds amazing. My first my first thought when you mentioned that was like Mad Men, like that sort of era. of. I think because I was thinking about you working in advertising as well. And I thought yeah. that's just that like that classic sort of thing in my mind but that sounds that sounds amazing it is slightly historical it doesn't feel that historical to me but it will to you because it's before you were born but it's <laughs> the summer of 1983 and I was living in New York in, in that whole decade and I remember really distinctly the arrival of AIDS on the scene because we were all you know we were the kind of the generation of free love and you know birth control pill and you know we go for it which also had its problems but suddenly out of the corner of our eyes all of us we started seeing people dying young people dying and then it suddenly it became they gave it a name and it became an epidemic but i remember the first time somebody said to me that they had a friend who went into the hospital on friday and died on tuesday of pneumonia oh. so in their 20s and i was like what 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 even is this and of course in retrospect it was the first case of AIDS I'd ever heard of. Wow. So. Do you think um do you think you included that sort of stuff or were in that sort of mindset because of COVID and well, riding I, in lockdown? I, I think possibly there was yeah, there was an element of it because you know, I I'm searching on the internet, you know, at four in the morning if I'm awake to see who in the White House has contracted COVID. I'm waiting for the I I'm waiting for them to drop dead, but unfortunately it doesn't seem to be happening. Um, but I will say, I will say, I think the only similarity between your book and Trump is that the cover is orange in. Yes, that's true. In England. That's but, true. Yeah. <laughs> I thought of that before. He looked a little bit less orange when he was at the hospital. I wonder if they just, <laughs> he wasn't allowed to take his makeup person with him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my, my boyfriend was saying the other day, he's like, who why doesn't someone just say you need to stop with the fake tan like it's just it's ridiculous but anyway that's enough of the orange monster on our podcast (laughs) Um, that's that's really fascinating I think it's something that it does fascinate me as well as a cultural thing because it it does feel historic to us of course because we were so we were not born in the 80s and so young in the 90s, um, there's a wonderful movie. I don't know if you've seen it called Pride. And yes, it's, it. yeah, so it's about a Welsh mining village, 80s. And there's so many poignant reminders in there that so many young people who had done amazing things and were going to go on to do amazing things in their lives had their lives cut short. And I think 
that's it's just so interesting to reflect on on that right now yeah. in time yeah the, the times that we're living through the unprecedented times <laughs> yeah exactly exactly it, it is bizarre and there is the tendency always to sort of <clears throat> push historical things away I mean I was born a little bit further than you were born after AIDS I was mm-hmm. born after World War Two and the Holocaust. You know, I was born eleven years, nineteen fifty-six, eleven years after the end of the war. But it felt like it felt like ancient history to me. You know, stuff happened with old people who, you know, it's never going to happen again. And <clears throat> I can imagine something like AIDS feels the same. And then your kids, you know, will read about COVID and think, oh God. Well, we hope. Um, yeah. You know. But I mean, it's the same with um. I mean, in talking about diseases, um, like polio. Like that, yeah. the idea back then, like I was listening to a, again, a wonderful podcast um, that sort of explained. I didn't have time to read. <laughs> I know. Um, oh, when you, when, as you'll know in lockdown, when, you, when you're when you at home all day, there's plenty of time to listen yeah. to podcasts. Um, but they were sort of talking about the fact that, you know, if one child had polio in the town, you know, this fear would spread throughout. And I think I had always, I'd heard about polio I didn't, I didn't realize it was like contagious and like all this. And I was just like, Oh my God, like what the hell? Like that's, it's, it's so different. And it it does, it seems like ancient history, but it's relatively, so it was only, I think in like the fifties that this was going on, which. No, my father, my father had a mild case of polio and you know, it's hard to believe because it's been eradicated now. And then if you go back even further, like I've been reading Hilary Mantel and Wolf Hall and all that kind of stuff. Well, they're avoiding certain houses because they have the plague. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's it's kind of always been here. We've always lived with it. Yeah. And, you know, I feel kind of really optimistic about COVID. I feel that we will figure out a way to live with it and just to, you know, sort of be careful about it. And it does mm. seem really unfair to me that, you know, people my age who are more worried about getting it are sort of imposing this this lockdown on people your age who are not so worried about getting it i mean if you go to yeah. at the moment the pubs are jammed and the you know 23 year old my daughter are just you know i just say what well, so what are you doing tonight you know she's out all the time so i mean i'm a i'm a very boring person in my 20s i don't i don't yeah. go out much but i mean the highlight of my week is having a a friend around for a socially distanced uh, watching of Bake Off at the moment. So I am, we I'm a very Bake Off. Person. We all love Bake Off, yeah. <laughs> it's the joy that we need. I keep telling Caitlin that. It's like literally the whole nation is just like, this is what we need right now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it's very interesting too, because I think the main worry for young people now seems to be, uh, you know, their future, their jobs, less about the actual disease and more about what, what world are we facing where, you know, I know. Well, everything else that it affects, we've lived through pandemics like this before. We just named like five of them. So being this out. Yeah. Also, you know, something that people don't talk about that much is that after the black death, which was, you know, the really kind of big one in, well, I can't, um, when was the black death? 15, 13, I think it's 1348, if my high school serves me correctly. (laughs) But after the Black Death was the sort of breakdown, and things were much slower in those days, as we all know, Mm. eventually came the Renaissance. And they, you know, historians put them together and say that this whole kind of flowering of, you know, art and music and society and fashion and all that Mm. came out of the Black Death. So... I'm thinking that instead of 200 years, we're just going to have to wait about two years. And then, you know, all those empty shops, you know, the the um, high street kind of chains and all that sort of stuff uh, are going to be filled with people selling mad little things that they've just made or that they've thought up or, you know, whatever. Yeah. And I mean, the other, the other wonderful thing to come out of uh, that, that, that particular instance of the plague 
again, if high school, the, the essay that I had to write in grade 12 serves me correctly, um, was the breakdown of the feudal system and massive social changes that allowed exactly. people to demand more, you know, more pay for their work and not to essentially... The shortage of workers place. all of a sudden. Yeah. And so they, yeah, you're right, and they got power. Yeah. And so guys... You know, and this time, instead of, I mean, taking down the monarchy, we're just taking down, you know, systemic racism and yeah. the patriarchy and stuff. That seems like a great outcome from this disastrous year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can't, always see it. you can't always see the change when you're in the middle of it, but I, I, I feel really optimistic about it. Yeah, I mean, I do too now after this chat. You've really you've made me feel way less anxious about this. <laughs> this is wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> change a few governments. We've got to change a few governments. That's, you know. Yeah. 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 I guess we'll get talking about books again. I know. Um, where were we? <laughs> <laughs> so you are often regarded as a young adult author and you have also written adult novels, but you have said that you don't really see yourself as a young adult author. So who do you see as your audience? You know, to be honest, I don't think about my audience that much. I mean, I am trying to get at a truth in my books. I'm trying to entertain myself. I'm trying to live out my own fantasies to some extent. Um, And I don't want to get too hung up on who's reading them. I'm really interested in adolescence. I'm really interested in what happens between the ages of 13 and, you know, uh, I don't know. Adolescence, in my mind, goes on and on and on. Um, and I've said that, you know, numerous times before. You can take a break from adolescence. Like, for instance, maybe you get married, you have kids, if you're that way inclined, and you feel like an adult for a little while. You have a job, you know, you think, ooh, look at me, you know, I'm an adult. <laughs> But then stuff breaks down again and maybe your kids leave home or you get divorced or you have a new partner or, you know, you decide you hate your career and you want to do something different. In those periods of your life, whether you're in your 30s, your 40s, your 50s or your 60s, you're back into adolescence again. You're back into asking those same questions. Who am I? You know, is anyone ever going to love me? You know, you know, what should I do with my life? And and what I'm interested in is those questions, really. and. I think what people don't realize is you you never, there is no plateau of adulthood. There is no plateau of happiness. You're changing all the time and your life is sort of developing in a way that those questions keep coming up. You know, I have friends who, who were lawyers for 30 years and now are saying, I really hate being a lawyer. I want to do something else. Or friends who were married for 25 years or in a relationship for years and years and years. And, you know, then they come out of it and they go, woo, what next? And so that kind of what next feeling, you know, how do I be a person? Uh, How, uh, you know, and when you think about it, as you get really older, you're starting to think, maybe I'm going to die in the next 20 years. And how do I want people to think about me? How do I want to think about my life? at the end so it's still the same questions that you're asking at the beginning how do i how do i want to spend my life you know and there's a lot of kind of lurching from place to place when you're young you know luck and you know somebody offers you a job that you didn't even really want and then suddenly you're doing you know there's a lot of fate kind of pushing you in certain directions and you know i think that those those questions are, are what i'm writing about and in a way, they make most sense to me if you put them in teenagers. But, you know, for instance, my so-called adult book, the, the main character was about, I thought of him as about 23, 24, and he was in his first job, and he hated it. And, you know, is that different from someone who's 19? I mean, you know, it, it's these categories that are set up, but they don't really make sense. Mm. Yeah, I guess I'm slightly more interested in writing about the earlier stages of how to be a person than I am a sort of 45 year old who gets divorced and you know I yeah the so called like second act yeah book exactly second act now there's second act third act fourth act (laughs) you know I mean you know in the in the old days you, you were looking for a nice sort of slow trajectory where you 
kind of, you know, added slowly to your life every year. You got a little more expert at your job and, you know, you got to be a little bit more senior. And now the graph of people's lives is just up and down, up and down. You know, you guys are doing a podcast now. You might become fabulously successful. You might not. You might decide you're going to give it up and do something completely different. It's all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. There's a a lot of fluidity. And, you know, you can look at it as being all over the place. But also there's a kind of freedom. I mean, I felt really trapped when I was working in advertising because suddenly I was making money and I could see so many people who were saying, I'm going to give this up. I'm going to give this up and do what I really want to do. But then, you know, you make a lot of money, you start buying stuff and then you have to support this lifestyle where you're buying stuff all the time and then you can't ever give it up. I was because I got fired all the time. So I never got to like really relax, you know, and eventually when I, after I've been fired about five times, I thought maybe they're trying to tell me something. <laughs> I mean, talk about slow. I was, couldn't have been slower. And, and that's when I thought I'm going to try to write a book. You know, I've always wanted yeah. to do it. I've always been afraid to do it, but you know, so that was my second act. I mean, what a wonderfully fabulous second act to have mm-hmm. how I live now as such an incredibly successful novel and actually that leads into our next question as well about the Astrid Lindgren Memorial Award so that is one of the richest prizes in children's literature um, and was a recognition of several of your novels your body of work rather than one particular novel it's an incredible achievement and you won it in 2016 but um, I'm interested in what you said in the past about perhaps feeling a bit unworthy compared to the the people who were also considered for the award and, and maybe people whose writing you really admire. I think it's imposter syndrome, something literally everyone feels, but I think it's particularly intense when you're in a creative profession and you're constantly, if you're a, if you're a writer as well, you're constantly reading amazing books and you're just thinking, I can never be that good. Um, but it's, it's really interesting um, to hear you say that. So can you tell us more about that experience and I guess how you reflect on that now? Yeah, I mean, I'm not given to huge waves of self-doubt. I mean, but I never know when I finish a novel whether it's any good. I mean, I, you know, I have to give it to someone to read and say, you know, with a great garden, I sent it to my agent and I said, is this even a book? I mean, I don't even know. It you know, I started it so long ago and it's quite short. And I mean, what even is it? And she just wrote me back an email going, yes, it's a book. Keep working. <laughs> so, so even though I'm not a very, I, I would consider myself not a very insecure person. And I get slightly cross sometimes if I am up for a award and I don't win it. Um, but then on the other hand, I think self-doubt is unbelievably important to the creative process I think if you lose your self-doubt then you lose you know what pushes you to to keep digging the bloody hole when you're writing a book and and you know when I was teaching creative writing I used to say to my students all the time writing is a lot of the time it's like digging a hole you know and the ground is slightly frozen you know and you just think why am I doing this and I'm never going to get anywhere and it's never going to be never going to look like anything so you have to have a lot of tenacity in a way and you also you have to use that self-doubt and realize that you have to push and push and push yourself because otherwise it's not going to be any good so when I won the Astrid Lingwood Prize um you know there are 220 people on the so-called shortlist oh it's not very short I mean that's the list you know you have to be nominated by your country and um there was one person in particular I felt really bad that I won because I thought he should have won. And that's a guy called Wolf Erlbrook, who's a German writer. And he wrote a book called Death in the Tulip, which is one of my favorite. It's a picture book, but I mean, you know, it's got no age at all. Um, it's the most profound book about death that I've ever read. Yeah, perfect for a five-year-old. Um, and he won the year after I won. And what I wish is that he'd won the year before because because I felt so unworthy and I'd never dreamt that I would win that prize. I hadn't even fantasized. So when I won, when I saw that there was a call from Sweden, I first thought, oh, it's my mobile phone company calling me. And then when they said, this is so-and-so from the Astrid Lindgren Prize, I thought, oh, maybe David Armand has won and they want 
a quote from me about how good he is. So it, I, it was that extreme. I mean, it's, you know, you say it's one of the richest children's book prizes in the world. It's the second richest writing prize in the world. After the Nobel Prize is the Astrid Lindgren Prize. I mean, it was an extraordinary experience for me, partly because I did feel maybe they'd made a mistake. And so I worked 10 times harder in order to sort of be worthy of it. I wanted them to feel that they hadn't made a mistake. And it was sort of after, you know, the year of doing events all over the world, really, because of it, that I started to think, well, maybe they didn't make a mistake. You know, maybe there is something about my writing that is different enough and, you know, that that was worthy of the prize. You know, the interesting thing is, you know, I was talking earlier about the flip side of beauty, the flip side of success. I worked so hard that year and I'd already had a big tour set up. So I, you know, I was in Australia, I was in America, I was all over the place for that book as well. And by the end of the year, I went to the Women's March in Washington um, after Trump was elected and I got sick that day and I never quite recovered from that illness. And it was glandular fever. And I've had sort of uh, a version of uh, chronic fatigue syndrome ever since. You know, so to me, you know, it's not that the Astrid Lindgren Prize ruined my life. It, it made my life. It gave me such a strong sense that maybe I was contributing something. But on the other hand, my insecurity about it made me push myself to a point of a real breakdown, I think. I mean, I was in bed mm. most of that following year just ill so you know again but as a writer every experience you have then makes you think okay let's think about success you know everybody wants to be successful you know everybody wants to be Taylor Swift well you know who would be Taylor Swift I mean in some ways it allowed me to relax about my writing to think okay you know you're not you don't have to prove quite so much anymore but on the other hand I didn't really do any work for two years you know every bit of life teaches you a little bit more about what it is you're doing and I always say that the best thing about being a writer is that I'm paid to think you know most of the time most jobs you're paid not to think and your employer is really dedicated to making sure you don't have time to think because if those drones have time to think you'd be out of there so fast (laughs) So it all contributes. And, and I've got an amazing relationship now with Sweden. I keep asking them to give me, to give me a passport. And they always go, oh, yes, yes, yes. We're, we're, we're working on it. Ha, 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 ha. And I go, no, 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 no. Not ha, 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 ha. Passport. <laughs> Let me in. <laughs> uh, that's, a, that's incredible. And to have your insights, you know, four years on as well is is really fascinating as well because you know often we we hear and see a lot of press around these things immediately after which is like oh my god it's a life-changing thing amazing but to have that reflection has is really really fascinating and I think a good lesson to us all to think about success and what it what it really means and what it is that we're striving for yeah as well yeah, yeah. And it's really interesting to think about having to accept that you actually got you know an award or whatever it may be that you actually got that and that you actually deserved it and did deserve it and did earn it yeah that sort of journey post winning of like actually yeah yeah, accepting it I think the people you need to really beware of are the ones who say well finally they awarded me what I deserve (laughs) I mean I do feel that way about like when they just announced the um Nobel Prize for Literature and I don't actually know um, I've forgotten her name now, the poet who won it, the American poet. Um, but I keep thinking, I mean, I'm such a fan of Hilary Mantel. I think she's the greatest writer alive. And, you know, I wonder with her, if she won the Nobel Prize, whether she would think, yeah, I deserve this a little bit. Um, if you know, I, I keep hoping I'm going to meet her because we had a correspondence at one point, but then she became so ridiculously famous. But I would like to ask her that you know if you did you know I think she should win the Nobel Prize for Literature and you know when she does hopefully she will win it whether she'll think well it's about time or whether she'll also have that feeling that oh my god you know I'm unworthy 
It is interesting to think about because the other thing there is that, of course, Hilary Mantel got knocked off the long list I was for the book prize. I'm appalled by that. And I'm not saying that the books on the list aren't good. You know, I'm sure I love but I, I'm sure they're great. But uh, has anyone written better than anything? I don't think anyone's written a book better than The Mirror and the Light in 100 years. So, you know, what can I say? Yeah, I have to admit, I haven't read any of Hilary Mantel's books, but I saw The Mirror and the Light, and it's very, very long. So I admire her for writing it, and yeah. I admire anyone who reads it. <laughs> Yeah, but, and I and I know too with writing any historical fiction, like the amount of research that goes into that, and then to be able to to make a brilliantly written story out of that and not turn it into a history textbook yeah. is so much work as well. Like, but, yeah, she goes one step beyond that, which is she brings this man. It's like she re- reincarnates him. And someday, I really, really recommend you know when you're you know when you break your leg and you're stuck in bed for like six months, just read the three books. I mean, I read The Mirror and the Light over lockdown because, yeah, when do you, when in real life do you have time to read a 900-page novel? I mean, yeah. I mean, you read that and wrote a book I in did. lockdown. Yeah. That's the most productive lockdown story I've heard, <laughs> really. Uh, you know, it took me about a month to read it and it, because I was reading it slowly and I was also writing and I didn't want to rush through it and... I'm not saying everybody has the time to do that. And I suspect that the Booker Prize judges just couldn't give it the time that it deserved. And it's not an easy book. You know, it's, mm. it requires a lot from the reader. But, you know, there you go. When you yeah. get her on your podcast, then I'll, you know, listen and hear what you think about it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. We could be so lucky. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Well, if we get her on, we definitely have to read all three books. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, but as you say, she's so wildly successful now. She don't care about us. Yeah. <laughs> or us, or me, or anyone. <laughs> um, so we'd love to finish on a little bit of advice for your younger self. If you could go back and give yourself some advice as your first book was being published, what would you say? Well, my when my first book was being published was a weird time for me because I had, I, my book came out the same week I was diagnosed with cancer and I didn't do any promotion of the book that year and it became a huge, huge hit. But again, I wrote that book. I sent, I gave it to my husband and I said, is this any good? Do you, and, and he said, well, I think it's good, but I mean, you know, what do I know? And then my agent called and said, oh my God, this book is brilliant. And my reaction to that was, oh gosh, people in publishing are so nice. You know, (laughs) it wasn't really being nice. She actually thought it it was brilliant. I mean, if you don't mind, I'd like to go back another 20 years to a, a younger version of myself and say that all of it, just remember that all of it is part, you know, that I mean, the biggest cliche in the world, the journey is the destination. You can't, get through life without having the the horrible shit times at times you think no one is ever going to recognize that I can do a job no one is ever going to recognize that I'm worthy of a partner you know I'm going to feel confused and depressed and you know like the the world is opaque for the rest of my life and it doesn't really work that way you know you 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 know so talking to myself I would say hang on in there you know embrace the crap as well as the good stuff because eventually you start to get a sense that the world makes sense and you know then along comes trump and boris johnson and you know tony and you think actually the world makes no freaking sense at all Um, (laughs) but and but that's important too you know well until that last bit that was very inspiring and very uplifting Yeah. And also, you, you in life, you have to figure out what you can do to make yourself feel better. And, you know, there's a great line in T.H. White's book, The Sword and the Stone, children's book, where Merlin says to the young King Arthur, says, very, very depressed and miserable, and says, the best thing for feeling sad is to learn something. You know, and that's something that's stuck in my head for years and years and years. And I would add to that, the best thing for feeling sad is to do something. I've been sending Pretty Patel 
kind of hate letters <laughs> saying, you know, your family would be so ashamed of you. You know, you're an immigrant. Why are you talking about sending, you know, sending immigrants onto empty cargo ships? I mean, how can you treat other people like that? So it makes me feel a little bit better to write to the government and say, you know, where's your humanity? I'm going to have to get out there and join Extinction Rebellion. I'm planning to do that when I get back. But, you know, all, all those things, all those things make you feel better. When you're feeling helpless, when you're feeling yeah. stuck, you know, all that, get out and do something or get out and learn something. That's wonderful advice. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. I, I feel like I've learned, I feel so inspired and I yeah, feel like I've learned so much about life and I definitely feel brighter about the outcome of these unprecedented times <laughs> I I mean I think optimism is really important in being human you know even though I don't feel optimistic all the time I feel really depressed some of the time when I read the news but you know we've got to we, we've got to all be optimistic otherwise we don't yeah. see ourselves um where can people find you online and find out more about your books megrosoff.co.uk and there's a contact form if you want to get in touch with me um i'm usually doing nothing most of the morning because i usually write better in the afternoon so i tend to write a lot of emails in the morning so if you've got more questions i will answer them yeah that's it oh wonderful thanks so much again for joining us it's been an absolute pleasure oh it's been great to meet you guys (laughs) thank you for listening to better words you can chat to us on instagram at better words pod and follow me michelle at unfinished bookshelf and me, Caitlin, at Just a Bookish Babe. If you liked this episode, please share it with a book-loving friend and leave a rating or review.